story will be very familiar to you. After months of pressure and a scathing report by the Attorney General of New York State, Andrew Cuomo resigned this past Tuesday as governor of the state of New York, effective August 24th. He basically, as one comedian put it, he gave himself a two weeks notice. Uh, well, who is Andrew Cuomo? Uh, is he a sexual harasser who used his power as governor to intimidate, grope, and victimize 11 women? Or is he the victim of generational and cultural shifts? You say, well, how can you even make that statement? Well, let me quote from his resignation speech. Quote, The most serious allegations made against me have no credible factual basis in the report. Then he goes on and then continues, This is not to say that there are not 11 women whom I truly offended. There are. And for that, I deeply, deeply apologize. You listen carefully, and that doesn't quite sound like it should sound. Uh, There's nothing that I did. There's no credible factual basis to the report. But I did offend some women. Uh, that's, that's, the first, that's that first paragraph. The second one even, even is a, it's, it's different. Uh, quote, I've never crossed the line with anyone, but I didn't realize the extent to which the line has been redrawn. There are generational and cultural shifts that I just didn't fully appreciate, and I should have. No excuses. In other words, I'm an old codger that no things have changed. And so, again, it's not my fault. Uh, It's not my fault. These quotes make it clear that who Cuomo thinks himself to be is quite different from the medial portrayal and those who have accused him of misconduct. And how a person perceives themselves and what they believe about the core of their identity is an influential factor in the choices one makes. How I see myself will determine, have a great deal of, uh, of, of influence upon what I choose to do or what I choose not to do or how I see myself or how I, find, uh, how I see myself in certain situations. We are prone to act as human beings. We are all prone to act in ways that correspond with, who, uh, with whom we think ourselves to be. Uh, again, I'm always reminded about uh, the illustration that Paul Tripps used when he was uh, a, 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 a young child, not, not too young, a preteen, and was at a, a, a family reunion, and uh, uh, one of his uncles had gotten drunk and was, was uh, spouting out very vulgar things, and his mom grabbed him and, and uh, his brothers and, and took them out of there and got in the car, and when she got in the car, she made this statement to him, there... there whatever comes out of the mouth of a drunk was first in their heart. Nothing comes out of their mouth that wasn't first in their heart. And, and, and in other words, that, that, that what we do and what we say reveals who we are, how we act, how we see ourselves, how, how, how we view our identity. And, and so since that's the case, since we are prone to act in ways that correspond with, whom we think ourself, with who we think ourselves to be, It is imperative as believers that we understand our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, again, if you recall, as we've, this is uh, well, this is kind of the last section, uh, and we'll go back to it in just a second. This is kind of the last major section of the opening section of this book after the introduction in verses one and two. And Peter begins this by talking about identity, and he ends this by talking about identity. 
And then he's going, beginning in, in verse 11, in fact, look at verse 11. He's going to say, uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Uh, then this next major section is going to deal with, because of who you are, these are the decisions you should make and this is how you should act. This is the way that you should live because this is who you are. You live out who you are, and living out who you are is going to look like this in different aspects. Peter's going to talk about different aspects of life, whether it relates to how we interact with, with family, how we interact with spouses, how we interact with, with uh, 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 in the work world. He's going to talk about how we interact and what that should look like. And over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to be spending what may seem an inordinate amount of time in these seven verses. And as we work our way through this overview this morning, you're going to see, because we're going to be dealing with issues that will determine whether or not you are all male or pre-mill, whether or not you think that, that the church has replaced Israel, uh, whether or not you believe uh, that not only is there divine election, but there's divine reprobation, uh, there's a lot in these verses, a lot in these seven verses. And let me just say we're all not going to agree on it, okay? <laughs> right now, just say right now, we're not going to agree on all this stuff. You're not, everybody's not going to be in agreement with what I'm going to say about it, and that, that's okay. That's okay. There, there's, there's room in this. Uh, let, me, let me be a smart aleck this morning. There's room for this for you to be wrong, okay? Uh, but, but, we're, but we're going to look at this and, and go through this, and, and, and we're going to come up with, with different interpretations of it. And to be quite frank, a lot of it's going to be determined upon our theological presuppositions. We all have them. We all have them. But we're going to be looking at this passage and spending some time here. Uh, and again, we'll talk more about that as, as we get there. Uh, yet these verses... These verses are foundational. Regardless of where we might fall on some of the particulars as we work through this and some of the, the, the I'm not going to necessarily say, uh, mean ancillary, that they're not important, but as we work through this, we're going to see some things. Of, of if you hold to this, you, you believe that this is what this is talking about, this is how it's going to have the ripple effect in a lot of different things of what you believe. But yet these, these verses are foundational if we are to think well regarding our identity. Whatever position we come to on some of these issues, it's not going to affect the overall thing of what's going on here. Who are you in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? And not only is it foundational as we think well regarding our identity, but also the choices that are going to accurately portray who we are. Uh, regardless of what you might, regardless of where you may fall on some of these things, that's not the major point here. The major point is going to be, this is who we are, and this is how it should affect our lives and the way in which we live. And again, remember, Peter is talking to a group of people who are going through very, very difficult circumstances. We mentioned this in our Bible study class today. We, we talked a little bit about mask mandates to start off the class, which was completely off the top topic of, of, of money, debt, and finances. But, but we, we mentioned the fact that we certainly live in interesting times with various opinions, <laughs> even various opinions within the church about all the things that are taking place here. So how do we, as, as, we, as we think through this, how do we set some of these other things aside and think about how it affects we live out our lives? And so this morning, our time is going to be invested 
by examining the structure and flow of these seven verses, followed by a brief explanation. And, and by brief, I mean brief explanation of the two key themes in this, in this section. Because those two key themes is where we're going to be diving into, diving a little bit more deeply into uh, over the course of, quite frankly, I'm not sure how long, okay? As we go through these next seven verses. So what is the structure and the, and the thought flow of this? We've already kind of mentioned this. this. These verses, again, form the final unit of the opening of the letter that begins in chapter 1 in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, he's, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He mentions mercy there. And then when you get down to, to verse 10, uh, once, once we were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here we have kind of these bookends here. He talks about God's mercy as he talks about the, the fact of, of our identity and who we are in Christ as recipients of God's mercy. And, and so he, he, he talks, begins talking about this in chapter 1, verse 3. And by the time we get to the section where we're in, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, we come to basically the mountaintop, the climax, uh, the, the, the majestic, climatic, description of who believers are because of who Christ is. If you've ever driven west or ever driven up to Colorado, you, you, you've, you've experienced when you're driving and, and the land is flat and then it gets maybe a little bit of hills and then all of a sudden, boom, there's those mountains. And, and the closer you get to them, the, the bigger the mountains become. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. It starts off and, and it's truly grand truths about who we are in Christ. And as, as Peter continues to explain and develop what he's saying here under the inspiration of the Spirit, by the time we get here, the mountains have appeared. And we have this great majestic climax of what it means, of who we are in Jesus Christ. And as Peter begins this unit, uh, again by this unit I mean chapter 1 and verse 3, he reminds them of a few things. He reminds them of their new birth. He reminds them of a new living hope. He reminds them of a new relationship with God. He reminds them of a new inheritance. That's chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. We have a new birth, a new living hope, a new relationship with God, a new inheritance. In chapter 1, verse 13 through chapter 2 and verse 3, which we just finished, he talks about this new relationship with God results in a new relationship with one another. To be a believer not only means that my relationship with God has changed, it means my relationship with people have changed. I'm no longer uh, a, a child of Satan. I'm no longer to be influenced by this world. I now have a relationship with every believer, past, present, and future, who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There is now a unique bond and a unique relationship. Coming to Christ uh, and, and having a relationship with Him also simultaneously means I've come to a group of a people too as well. I have a new relationship now with a group of people. There's, there's a different bond. There, there's a different uh, kindred spirit. Uh, we, we are indwelt by the same spirit. We, we love and serve the same God. And, and, and that relationship, this new relationship now changes my relationship with people whom I may never have anything else in common with. 
But because of the commonality that we have in Christ, there is a bond, there is a love, there is a concern, there is a a, a longing for fellowship, a a longing to serve each other, not because we agree politically, not because we we, uh, uh, live in the same zip code, not because uh, we might uh, have the same interest or root for the same teams, but because of Jesus Christ that, that causes the world to say, what? How can, you, how can you have a relationship when you're this and he's that? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. Well, in today's text, in this, this last section, Peter emphasizes the community's relationship to God. Not only the community's relationship to God, and, and I'll, I'll, when we get to the end of the message, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Not only that, but the community's relationship to redemptive history. Where do we fit in into the plan of God? Where do we fit in to the, to the grand scheme of God? And also to those outside of the community. And that, that's, the, that's the emphasis of this. What is now our relationship? Not only do we have a new birth, a new living hope, a new relationship with God, a new inheritance, a new relationship with those who are the children of God, those who are not the children of God, but also, how does, how does this community relationship that we now have with God, redemptive history, and those outside of the community? And in this concluding climax, Peter is going to use stone imagery. He's going to talk, again, just to, as we read that, you, he, mentions, he mentions a lot about stones, okay? He mentions a lot about stones. He's going to use stone imagery, and he's going to quote, uh, in verses 4 through 8, he's going to quote three passages, from the Psalms and Isaiah, and he's also going to continue his allusion to Psalm 34, verses 4 through 8. This, these seven verses that we read are chock full of either Old Testament quotes or allusions or illustrations. I mean, it's like, I mean, it, it, it's like having a suit, picture, a suitcase, and, and you've got to sit down on it to close it. And once you get it closed and buckled, you've got pieces of clothing sticking out, you know, from where, where it's, it's come down. That's how, much, that's how much Hebrew scriptures he's packed into these seven verses. I mean, it's, it's packed. In verses 9 and 10, Peter applies Israelite imagery to the church from Exodus, Isaiah, and Hosea. Look, you say, what do you mean by that? Well, look at the text. Look at verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race. That's a term that's used for Israel. You're a royal priesthood. That's a term used for Israel. You are a holy nation. That's a term used for Israel. You are a people for his own possession. That's a term for the nation of Israel. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. That's the the reference from Hosea. All these are terms that are applied to the nation of Israel. And notice again in verse 9 he says, but you are. He's talking to believers. He's taking terms that applied to Israel and applying them to the church, which is where people will look at this and say, see, the church has replaced Israel. The church has replaced Israel. Because these terms that, because of Israel's rejection, now these terms are now going to be used for, for, for the church. And, and what we're going to look at, there, there, there's basically, a, when, we get, when we start diving... And this is why I say we're going to be some time here. There's basically three basic views you can take. 
either that there are two peoples of God, which is usually the classic, classic or traditional dispensational view, that Israel is a people of God and the church is a people of God. Or you can take the, cover, uh, the, the Reformed view, which basically says, no, the church has replaced... There's one people of God, and the church has replaced Israel. There's one people of God, and the church has replaced Israel, which is more of a Reformed view. Or m- my view, which is a uh, progressive dispensational view, there is one people of God. But within that one people of God, there are some distinctions. There are some distinctions within that one people of God. You say... What difference does it make? Well, it's going to make a difference to whether or not you believe there's a literal thousand-year kingdom and there's not a literal thousand-year kingdom. It's going to make a huge difference on some of these other things. So, but let me just kind of, let's put that in park, okay, and, and jump out of the seat there. And, 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 and as we think about what's going on here, Peter's thought flow, let's move from the structure to the way, his, his, his thinking here, how he, as under the inspiration of the Spirit, what he's writing down here, his, 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 his flow of thinking, Peter's thought flow also aids our understanding regarding identity. In these verses, in the verses that we read, Peter alternates between Christ and those who respond to him and Christ and those who reject him. You're going to have Christ and those who respond to Him. Christ and those who respond to Him. Those who respond to Him and Christ, that relationship. Then you're going to have those who don't respond to Christ, those who reject Christ and the relationship. Let's look at it. Okay, I know that's hard to see, but let's look, let's look at that. How, let's look at how he does that. He first talks about stone, the stone, the living stone, and stones. Okay? This is not Sly in the Family Stone, okay? which has some really great tunes, but we won't go into that now. Uh, but, but let's look at stone and stones. Okay, Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So you have Christ as the living stone. Then look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones... You yourselves like living stones. So Christ is the living stone, and those who respond to Him, verse 5 says, that we are also living stones. Plural. Okay, There's a, there, there, there's a relationship there. There's a connection there. Christ is the living stone, and those of us in this congregation who know Christ as their Savior, we are living stones living stones. Let's go on. Look at verse 5. Believers as a spiritual house. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As believers, we are not only living stones, but as living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house. Now look at verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. So we are being built up as a spiritual house upon Christ, who is the cornerstone of that house. So we have 
Christ is what? The living stone. We are, believers are, living stones. Christ is what? The cornerstone of the spiritual house. We are what? Materials as living stones. We are being built up together as a temple upon the the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. We are a spiritual house. Look at the idea of shame and honor. Look at verse 6. He says, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And when we get to that passage, we'll unpack that and develop that more. But there's, there's no shame. Believers never to be shamed. Believers never are to be shamed. But also, look at the honor and value that they give towards Christ. Now, the ESV translates it this way. So the honor is for you who believe. And that, that can make sense because he's talking about honor and shame. Again, the culture that this is written in is very much an honor-shame culture. But there's another way to translate this, which I think, I think makes better sense here. And not only, he's talking about the, the honor and value of Christ. You could translate it this way. So you who believe see his value. So, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So you who believe see his value. See his value. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected. So it can make sense there as well. That you have a group of people who see the value of Christ as the living stone. And you have those who don't see the value. The idea of that word rejected that's used twice in this passage has the idea of taking something. It'd be like this. I pick up my iPhone. I examine it. And I say, this thing's not good for anything. And I throw it away. I throw it away. That's the idea of this word rejected. That whoever rejects it is someone who has taken the time to evaluate what lies before them, what's there. They see it, they look at it, and they say, there's no value here. I'm not going to do do anything with it. There's no value. I'm going to throw it away. I'm going to reject it because it has no value. So here you have the idea of shame and honor. Believers are never to be shamed. And as believers, they recognize, the reason why they never are to be shamed, because they recognize the honor and value of Christ. The honor and value of Christ. Then you have downfall and destiny. Now now you move away from those who respond to Christ in a positive way, and you move to the fact of those who reject Christ. Look at, look at the latter part of verse 7. He says, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The downfall you have of, the, of those who reject the living stone. The stone that they looked at and said had no value to it, this same stone is a stone that has now become, the stone that they thought had no value is the very stone that became the cornerstone. The cornerstone. And and because of that, that, the stone now has become to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They, They trip over the stone. The stone causes them to fall. 
and this stumbling as the destiny of the unbelievers. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, that's going to be an interesting thing to look at. In other words, does God not only does God elect people to some to salvation and elect some to reprobation? What's he mean by and they were destined to do? And again, we're not going to agree on all this. Okay, let me, just, let me just say when we get there, we're not. I don't believe in a doctrine of reprobation, but but that, that kind of that kind of gives you a little bit where I'm going. But but we're not all going to agree on this in in, in, in doing that. And then finally, you have identity and mercy. Reception of God's mercy is determined by identity. If I'm God's people, I receive His mercy. If I'm not part of God's people, I don't. Look at verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God called you out of darkness brought you into light, and now you are called uh, according to the same terms that were used for the nation of Israel. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Receiving mercy is because of the fact that we are God's people. And those who are not God's people don't receive mercy. Don't receive mercy. So, you say, why take the time? Why take the time to go through all that? Well, the reason being is because in this, you have two key themes that are important for us to understand if we are going to truly understand who we are in Christ and how that should affect the everyday of our lives. The every day of our lives. Remember, this text talks about we are to be holy. And we talk about holy, be ye holy in all your conduct. Holiness is not about how soft, how your soft, hushed tones or how much Bible you know or, or how, uh, how unflapped you can look when, when, the, when the breezes of, of, of persecution and, and, and uh, difficult circumstances come your way. Holiness is about how, in this situation... Can I display the image of Christ? How can I do that? How can I display the image of Christ in this situation? My wife says something, and I come back with a smart aleck remark, and she says, that really wasn't necessary. How do I respond? Do I confess my sin? Do I recognize my need or... How do I respond next time so I don't even make that kind of statement? Holiness is about at work tomorrow at 10.12 in the morning. How am I going to look like Christ in this situation? So, we need to understand. and how Part of how we do that is by understanding who we are and living out our identity. Now again, these two themes, they're not going to be unpacked today. They're just going to be mentioned. And they're going to be unpacked over the course of the next several several weeks. The first theme is the close connection. The relationship between Christ and believers. And I take you back to what we looked at. Again, when you look at what he says in, in verses 4 through the first part of, 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 of verse 6, 
you have this sense of, of this Christ is the living stone. We are living stones. Christ is the cornerstone of the house. We are the spiritual house that is being built on that cornerstone. And all of this is a product of coming to Him. Look at verse 4. As you come to Him. I think this is not only a reference to our, our, our initial uh, salvation, where we put our faith and trust in Christ and became born again and became a believer at that moment in time. But I also think he's talking about not just that, but the fact that we have to come to Christ all the time. All the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. Uh, how, one way that we can know that we're growing uh, in our maturity in Christ is when we find ourselves in a situation and we say, God, I need, where we're talking to God and saying, God, I need help here. I, this, is, this is overwhelming to me. I can't deal with this right now. I need help. You have got to step in and help. I, I, I can't do this. Help me to reach out to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Give me the grace right now that I need. I can't do this. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. This is what I want to do. I need your strength. I need your help. Where We're constantly crying. We're constantly coming to Him. Because it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. It's, he's the one that gives us the strength to be able to live out our Christian walk. And so this matter of coming to Him. So we, we come to Him. And, and that coming to Him that is, is a, a result of tasting. Where it says, so again, where He says, as you come to Him. And then He describes Him as a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The hymn is a reference back to verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, who is Him? The Lord who we tasted and found to be good. And found to be good. So as a result of tasting, the believer keeps coming. And, and another way that you can understand the first part of this verse, to whom coming you are built up is I keep coming to Christ and coming to Christ and coming to Christ and coming to Christ and coming to Christ, I'm being built up. God, I need help. God, I need help. God, I need help. As I keep coming to Christ, I'm being built up. I'm being built up. He's the one who I'm going to, to give me the help, the strength, in order to be able to be built up and part because of this connection. Why do I come to Christ? Why is it imperative that I make it a habit of constantly coming to Christ? Why? Because this connection means this. That the experience and destiny of those who come to Christ are bound up with the experience and destiny of Christ Himself. It's what the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 4. When he says we have a high priest that's been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's been tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I keep coming to Christ and coming to Christ and coming to Christ because his experience and destiny, because I'm so connected to Him, is my experience and destiny. My experience and destiny. 
and the believer's understanding of their situation is going to be shaped by their identity. Our experiences are shaped by all that Christ has experienced. I come to a high priest who's been touched with the feeling of my infirmities, that's been tempted in all points like I am, who understands what it's like trying to be a human being serving God in a world that is against Him. He understands that. And He lived it out. That's why you've heard me say, it's not only the death of Christ that saves me, it's the life of Christ that saves me. I'm not just saved by His death, I'm saved by His life. And therefore, I come to Him because He has walked through it and He has trusted God when there was no reason, humanly speaking, for Him to trust God. Yet He did. He did. In the garden, He trusted God. On the cross, He trusted God. But yet, He still experienced the human feelings that you and I do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? but he still committed himself to God. Even though he's struggling with those emotions, he still, he didn't come down off the cross. He could have. He had the power to, but he didn't. He he fully trusted God even to the end, even when his emotions were telling him, he's forsaken you. He's forsaken you. That's why we keep coming to him and keep coming to him and keep coming to him and keep coming to Him because His experience is our experience. And our understanding of any situation has to be shaped by that. What is happening to me is happening to me in order that I can run to Christ and grow in my likeness to Him. To learn to trust and depend upon God. As I said, our experiences are shaped by all that Christ has experienced, the most important, by Christ's resurrection and victory over suffering and death. He conquered death and suffering. And I can too. I can too. Even if the worst thing happens and I die, my body's only going to be dead for a little while. I'm going to get a new body, a new physical body, a new physical body that I don't know all it's going to be like, but in my un- sanctified or unsanctified mind, be able to eat all the carbs you want and not gain any weight, okay? I don't know if it's going to work that way or not. But however it works, it's going to be great. Because Christ resurrected and Christ gained victory over suffering and death, I will too. I will too. That's why Paul says our, our momentary light affliction. Is, 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 he's, not, he's not downplaying it. He's not saying that suck it up and, and you know, quit whining and move on. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. It, 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 it shakes the very core of our faith. But at the same time, compared to what the result is going to be, it's, it's light. It's momentary. It's momentary. I'm going to live a whole lot longer in a glorified body 
that I am an unglorified mourner. I'm going to experience an eternity of being able to walk with God in holiness compared to whatever, how many years God gives me, whether it's in my 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or beyond. That's short compared to what I get after eternity. So that's the close connection. Peter's emphasizing this close connection to encourage these people to live out their identity and the fact that Christ's experience is your experience. He's the living stone, you're the living stones. You're the spiritual house that is being built on the cornerstone of Him. And then there's a contrasting choice. The contrast is between how this living stone is treated. And it's illustrated, there's basically two building projects going on in this this text. There is God's building project and the religious leader's building project. And the, the issue is between whether Christ is rejected or Christ is valued. Again, look at verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone. Who is this living stone? Well, He's rejected by men. The same word that's used later on. He's rejected by men. But, in the sight of God, chosen precious. God sees him with value. He's chosen. He's precious. Men see him. The religious leaders in particular saw him and rejected him. He's of no value. It's not that they didn't consider his claims. They did consider his claims. And when they considered his claims, they said, no value. No value. And this theme is so prominent in Peter's mind. It was the very theme of a message that he spoke all the way back in Acts chapter 4. Keep your place there in 1 Peter and go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. They're brought before the council. It talks about well, let's, let's just begin reading in, in verse 1, and we'll read all the way to verse 12. As they were speaking to the people, and again, it's referring back here to, to Peter and John, as they're on Solomon's porch. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the people and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, For it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a theme that stuck with Peter for decades as he later writes this book. As he later writes this book, there's two two choices when it comes to Jesus. You can either see Him as chosen and precious and see the value of who He is as God the Son, see Him as the cornerstone, or you can reject Him. He has no value. I mean, you look at our world. You look at, you look at the, 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 the majority thinking in our country and of those who lead our country. Jesus has no value. No value. The choice? Well, we looked back at in our text earlier where you have the situation between those who honor, they're not being put to shame, and the reason why they're not put to shame is because of the honor. They they see the honor and value of Jesus, and then in verse 4, if you don't believe, for those who do believe, they see the honor and value of Jesus, and they're never put to shame. For those who don't believe, this same stone that was seen to be of honor and value is rejected. And in fact, that stone becomes now a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So what's the divide? What is the thing that Peter is trying to get across here? Peter is letting us know, especially as we get down to verses 9 and 10, is this. That when it comes to Christ, when it comes to having a relationship with God, it has nothing to do with ethnicity or genetic descent not whether or not you're a physical descendant of Abraham, but rather how one responds to the gospel promises fulfilled in the living stone, Jesus Christ. Whether or not you reject or value Christ has nothing to do with whether or not you're a Jew. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're a Gentile. It has nothing to do with any of the other differences that we see among ourselves as human beings. What is the difference between those who have no shame, who value Christ, and those who are rejected, and that same rock becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? It has nothing to do with intellect. It has nothing to do with privilege. It has nothing to do with what country you come from. It has nothing to do with your economic level. It has nothing to do with any of those things. What it does, what, what is the difference? The difference is whether how you're going to respond to the gospel promises fulfilled in the living stone. Are you going to believe? Or are you going to reject? For those who do believe, you see the value. You have no, there's no shame. You're never shamed. For those who don't believe, that stone is rejected. That stone is rejected. And it becomes now a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's the difference. That's the divide. That's part of why he makes a, your, your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You who were not a people, but now you are God's people. It, it's got nothing to do. These same things are, 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 are mentioned of those who, who are not, 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 some of them are not Jews. Some of them are Jews, but some are not Jews. It's got nothing to do with their descent. It's got nothing to do with whether they're Jews or not. It's got everything to do with the fact that they put their faith and trust in, faith and trust in Christ faith and trust in Christ. So, let's go back to the beginning. 
who does Andrew Cuomo think he is? From his resignation speech, he envisions himself as a, as a, as a gregarious baby boomer who's, in his thinking, innocent, affectionate interactions with women have become antiquated and subsequently misunderstood. You know, this is who I am. I'm, a, I'm an outgoing guy. I like to hug. I like to, I, I, I kiss on the forehead. I do that. And that's just, that's who I am. That's how I was raised. Uh, but the lines have shifted in, my, in the 60, he's 60, he'll be 64 this year. In the 63 years that I've lived, the lines have shifted. How that kind of interaction with women is now, it's, 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 it's antiquated now. It's not acceptable now. The culture has shifted. The culture has changed. And my actions were merely misunderstood. I didn't do anything wrong. My actions were merely misunderstood. That's how he sees himself. That's how he views himself. That's not how the media portrays him. And that's not how the women who have accused him portray him. Two different views here. Question is, who am I? Who are you? You either value Christ or you reject him. One or two. We either value him or we reject him. There's no middle ground. We value or we reject. You either are closely connected to Christ or alienated from Him. If you're, if, if, if you're, if you're connected to Him, you're, living, you're, you're part of the living stones. You're part of the spiritual house. You're part of those who never need to be put to shame. But that also means then you ought to live like it. Our lives will look different. And that's the whole beginning in chapter 2 and verse 13 and down all the way through chapter 4. That's what he's going to talk about. This is who you are. And even though you're going through rough, difficult times, it doesn't give you a pass. It doesn't give me a pass to not let the character of Christ flow through me. It doesn't give me a pass. Regardless of my situation, I am to live, I'm to be holy in all my conduct. All my conduct. Your choice determines your relationship. Your choice determines your relationship to God. Remember we told you at the beginning, this is, talks about our community relationships. Our community relationship to God our community relationship to redemptive history, our community relationship to those outside the community. So my choice determines my relationship to God. Mercy or no mercy? Mercy or no mercy? Again, in chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Chapter 2 and, and verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My choice, your choice, determines your relationship to God. Whether or not God deals with you in mercy, or He doesn't deal with you in mercy. Your choice determines your relationship to God as it relates to redemptive history. People or no people. I mean, we can say this and get by with it. You people, okay? You people. I'm part of the you people. 
Okay? I'm part of the you people who are part of the family of God. People are no people. And your choice determines your relationship to those outside of the community. Those outside of the community of faith do not value Christ. Christ has no value to them unless it can help them achieve something that they want to achieve. If, 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 if saying something about if, if saying Jesus' name or you know, saying a prayer or quoting a scripture can help me achieve something that I want to achieve, then I'll do it. But once that happens, then you know, let, let's open up the, let's take Christ, uh, let's take him and let's put him back in this box and put him back on the shelf until we need him again and then we'll pull him out. But for the true, genuine believer, Christ has value. He has value. My life should look like His life. And so therefore, it's no wonder, as Peter's going to say later in this book, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when people just don't like you. Not because you're a jerk. Hopefully that's not because you're a jerk. But don't be surprised when persecution comes your way. Because what you value is different than what they value. You've got a competing value system. You've got a competing value system. And as we talked about, as we mentioned earlier, so all this stuff that's going on right now with masks, no masks, vaccinations, no vaccinations, all, you know, no, every, for a believer, everything should come under this rubric. How do I display Christ in this situation? How do I give glory to God in this situation? If they say mask and I don't want to mask, how do I give glory to God in this? What does it look like? What does it look like to honor and glorify God in this? And what means do I use? There's times that Paul bent over and got lashed. There's also a time when Paul was getting stretched out and he said, whoa, wait a second. You're going to do this to a Roman citizen? And everybody, whoa, whoa, we better rethink this. Paul's a Roman citizen. And we've all, we're already in trouble for how we've treated him. It takes the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. But as we go walk through the situation and times in which we live. We have a sure word of testimony that we can go to that can help guide us and direct us so that we can live out our lives wisely and in a way that demonstrates the character of Christ because we more than comfort, more than freedom, more than choices, more than wealth, more than anything else that this world or this country has to offer. What we better value, first and foremost, is Christ. Is Christ. And how that plays out in our lives. And that, we may have differing opinions about. We may have different, and that's okay. That's okay. 
But what we do, we better do in order to show to those around us that what we value, who we value, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today, and thank you, Father, that uh, your word is relevant, regardless of what's going on. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. The wrapping paper might change. The bows might look different. The box may be a different shape. But what's inside it is still the same. It's still the same. Terms might change, but we're grappling with the same issues. And Father, I pray that you would help us as children of God, Lord, to make sure that that what we value is Christ. And that should affect how we live and the choices we make and how we go about doing what we do. In obedience to you with a clear conscience so that when we stand before you, we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. May you help us, Father, and may we just rejoice in you today. May we be grateful for your word. We're thankful for who we are, our connection to Christ. Our identity is found in him. His experiences, our experiences are connected to his experiences. And, Father, we uh, we have a sure word. And so, Lord, we thank you, and we just pray you would encourage each one here. And, Father, for someone that may be here that may not know Christ as their Savior, I pray you show them their need. I pray you show them their need. Lord, help them to see that without a relationship with Christ, without submitting to what he has accomplished for us on the cross and receiving the free gift of salvation, that because of his life and death and because... The wrath of God was poured out upon Him for our sin. That when we put our faith and trust in who Jesus is and what He accomplished on that cross, in that and that alone, we have eternal life. Lord, for those of us who are believers, Lord, uh, help us to wrestle with the issues of the day and be able to live out our faith well. We may not come to the same conclusion. Lord, help us to be willing to submit to the truth of Scripture, to change where we need to change, to think through what we need to think through. And when we do, we do so out of a clear conscience toward you that what we are doing is indeed pleasing to you. So Lord, help us to be shining lights. The darker it gets, the more brilliant the light becomes. And so Father... Help us to live out our faith well in our neighborhoods, at work, in our communities, and the opportunities that you place before us. That we would live out our faith well because we are anchored, we are sure about who we are, who, where our identity lies, not in the things that the culture tells us it should, not in the things that we naturally gravitate to because of the country in which we live in. 
Father, because of what the Scriptures teach us about who we are in Christ. Lord, we thank you for our citizenship in heaven, our citizenship in the kingdom. And Lord, we pray that that citizenship would guide us in the citizenship we have in this country that would make us the best citizens of this country that we can possibly be. Because our primary, our most important citizenship is the kingdom. So Father, we ask now your blessings upon your people today. We thank you for the blessings of this moment. And we just commit ourselves to you throughout this week. Help us to love well. Help us to embrace the truth. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. We want to invite you to take a moment and to think through those areas in your life. Um, you might be struggling. Or maybe there's, uh, there's areas where uh, Christ needs to be seen more. What, whatever the need is, we want to give you an opportunity to talk with God at this time. Let's go to the Lord in time of silence.